for the particular theme that we're exploring in terms of the evening talks and some of the meditation instructions has to do with this simple way the Buddha summarized the path, summarized his own insight and the path that then came out of his own insight, which is dukkha and the end of dukkha. That famous teaching story where he holds up a handful of leaves and says to the monks, maybe other practitioners that were with him, what's more, the handful of leaves in my hand or all of the leaves in this forest? And of course they understood that there's more leaves in the forest than there are in your hands, venerable sir. And he says, the Buddha says, just so, what I know is vast, like all the leaves in the forest, but I only teach a few things. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And he goes on to explain that he teaches that because that's, that's what's useful. And actually, this is as much of a problem for us as anything, because uh, of our imagination we can imagine a lot of interesting things to think about and we can also imagine a lot of fearful things to think about and it makes the moment-to-moment experience of stress and the end of stress seem relatively insignificant even though when we contemplate it of course it's by far the most relevant thing you know the present moment reality as it is you know the heart is either somewhat bound up or really bound up or not bound up at all but that's actually what's most relevant and if you don't like the phrase the heart that's bound up you could just substitute whatever words to you point to what's most relevant I mean the whole definition of dukkha it's pointing to what's relevant So if it doesn't seem relevant to you, it's because you don't understand. The word dukkha really is pointing to what's relevant. Dukkha and the end of dukkha. But it's just very interesting how we're not so interested in that. We're interested in whether I have enough money for retirement, or whether the environment is going to hell or not. But we're not interested in whether our heart is bound up right now, and whether you know, there's a possibility of release. And so the Buddha says, you know, it's the not, it's the not seeing this present moment experience of dukkha that's the cause for dukkha. It's the fact that we don't realize that the direct moment-to-moment experience of stress, however subtle that is, It's the missing that experience that is the cause for our almost endless torment, you know, endless uneasiness of the mind. So the Buddha um, taught in two ways. One is he talked about how to manage or suppress the causes of agitation or the causes of dukkha. 
So just to kind of get a little stability in our lives, how to have some skill at not being overwhelmed by mental agitation, mental stress. And then he taught about how to uproot uh, our um, tendency to be agitated, to uproot the very sort of uh, vulnerability we have to stress, to dukkha. So again, dukkha is pointing to the direct experience in the heart, the direct uneasiness in the heart. So we can suppress that without uprooting it. You know, for example, if all of a sudden, you know, I, I ring a bell and Kim and Dave would bring in a cart of ice cream and whipped cream and toasted uh, walnuts and naturally colored maraschino cherries. And <laughs> who knows what they'd look like, however. <laughs> you know, we'd probably, most of us would have a wave of, you know, we wouldn't, dukkha wouldn't be obvious for a while. It'd be fine and we'd maybe put some music on and, and uh, suspend noble silence. And it would be sort of cheery. And uh, so that's, then we wouldn't, you know, we'd have, the mind would be refreshed, we'd feel happy. So we, this is, uh, should be an obvious truth to us that we can, there is some room to play with life, to engage, participate in life in a way that manages our exposure to dukkha. It's, it's stressful, but we can get, we can uh, sort of have some refreshment. And it's worth having skill at this level. And of course, by having skill, it means that the refreshment we get comes with little cost. Being unskillful means we may be get some break from dukkha, but the consequence is a lot with dukkha, and the break is very small. You know, we see this, this these are the tragedies, the, the stupid things people do to get a little happiness that end up messing up their lives and other people's lives for a long, long time. Think of the little things people have done to get a little happiness, a little relief, that have caused problems. I was just thinking of one. I decided I better not share it. <laughs> but it's just one of those classic examples of a momentary, you know, like seeking a, a momentary pleasure that has lasting consequences. And the Buddha talks about these two, you know, ways of practicing the suppressing dukkha, putting it aside temporarily, and the uprooting of the causes of dukkha. He talks about it in different ways. Here's one quote from the Buddha. 
these two have a share in clear knowing, tranquility and insight. When tranquility is developed, desire is abandoned. When insight is developed, ignorance is abandoned. So it's just his, this is just one way of talking about these two ways of practicing. So to suppress dukkha, it means to put aside desire. So if that ice cream cart came in, whatever you might be desiring for now, like to be in bed asleep or to be home with your loved ones, or but what a, that desiring would temporarily be suppressed because your mind would be totally absorbed in Am I going to have the, you know, rum raisin or the, <laughs> you know, cherry Garcia? <laughs> That's what I'd like. And, uh, and then the other sort of desiring and the agitation that comes from desiring, it would be suppressed. It would be gone. That's what tranquility does, or momentary contentment, satisfaction, gratification, that's what it does. It puts aside the agitation of wanting and the disappointment, the frustration that comes with not getting what we want, sense of competition, the sense of it's not fair. All of those things that agitate our minds, they're put aside when we temporarily get something we like. And so, what tranquility is developed, Desire is abandoned. Tranquility, to tranquilize, it's actually an interesting word, we're going to tranquilize that the burning of desiring, of wanting, wanting with attachment. It's tranquilized. And there are many different ways to tranquilize the burning of craving. And we should be very familiar with the different ways of tranquilizing the burning of craving and the frustration that comes with not getting what we want, the aversion that comes with not getting what we want. So we should be good at that, and then we, with that tranquility, we want to get interested in um, the ignorance that can be abandoned, so that we're not just um, dependent on temporary breaks from the burning but we developed an immunity from burning, from dukkha. That's what insight's about. So let me first just review this first place of practice. And I, this is what I talked about last night when I, I mentioned, you know, making the resolve not to make things worse. So as we're living our life here on retreat and later when we go home, you know, we're going to find that burning of wanting, craving, and the frustration and the aversion and the fear that's associated with attachment and craving and grasping and wanting things to be a particular way. And it's so clear to us how life is burning. And we can be inspired to not want to add to this. You know, like uh, some of you are outside tonight, a lot of bugs out there. Didn't seem to be biting too much, but there were a lot of bugs. And it's really easy. This is such a common example of how when we're around a lot of insects, you know, the way that we relate to that experience 
can really create a hell realm. You know, if we start reacting to the bugs and getting agitated, and then it's like the mind is um, highlighting how many there are. You know, we could be aware of how peaceful it is. This has a really nice peaceful energy, even though it's a little humid and there are a lot of bugs. And see, it just depends on what we're attending to. If we attend to the enormity, the diversity of bugs, you know, then what happens to the mind? If we attune to the um, kind of the buzz of life, of nature, and the expanse of the view, and the muted greens and the soft gray of the sky, well, it has a different effect on the mind. So it's, it's actually not that different than the ice cream cart rolling in. You know, it's like noticing what's pleasant. That's what, that's what allows the burning of desire to go away. So we can be focusing on objects that ignite the fires of craving, fuel the fires of craving, or we can be attending to objects that are calming, <laughs> like the fly in Casey's forehead. <laughs> Same with, uh, you know, one of the things I experience a lot is just having uh, too much work, or at least the perception that I have too much work uh, to do list that I never sees I never see the end of it. And uh, just the other, maybe it was earlier today, I again remembered something that I was supposed to do months ago, <laughs> and it's actually on my to do list, just too far down. And so, you know, and now it's like uh, embarrassingly late. Um, and uh, it's like, how do we, how can we relate? If I focus on that and then focus on being the person who didn't do it and focusing on the consequence of it not being done, my mind can get really agitated. But I can have a different view. I can focus on uh, that the work will never be done. That's just how it is in life. Things won't be done. And... Uh, and that life isn't about getting everything done. Life is about the ending of dukkha. You know, so it's a different view then about the to-do list. It's like that uh, whatever value I have to add, offer myself and others, isn't going to be about how far down I get on the to-do list. It's going to be about and engaging my to-do list, whether I've been able to be a happy person, a loving person, a wise person. So, so much of what we consume, you know, like ideas, <coughs> thinking patterns that we consume, that really is what determines whether we're in the activity of the second dart, sticking the other dart. Because of life experiences, we're adding more agitation, agitating the mind. Just because life is messy, just because life is imperfect, just because there's a lot of difficulties, just because we don't always get everything we want, 
Does that mean we should be sticking darts in ourselves? Does it ever make sense to be sticking darts in ourselves? So we can ask ourselves, is there enough wisdom, enough perspective in our minds now to resolve to no longer react in ways that make matters worse? Not to contribute. To be willing to just be with the way that it is, even if it's not perfect, but at least we're not making it worse. This is uh, part of the power of a retreat is this feeling of uh, you know, the life that's, that we're living, all the life circumstances that we live with. It's a pretty powerful statement to step out for a weekend, you know, just to leave it behind, leave our phones off, disconnect from the news, all of our jobs and responsibilities, duties. We don't know if our loved ones are alive or dead. So it's it's really a big deal, this retreating from our, from our worlds. This is Ajahn Chah, great Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk from the last century. This is regarding solitude. He says, if you undertake the training, you will find that at first, physical solitude is important. When you come to live in seclusion, you can think of Sariputta's advice to monks concerning physical seclusion, mental seclusion, and seclusion from defilements and temptation. So defilements are those mental activities that burn, that agitate the mind. He taught that physical seclusion is the cause for the arising of mental seclusion, and mental seclusion is the cause for the arising of seclusion from defilement, things that burn. Of course, if your heart is calm, you can live anywhere. But in the beginning, to know Dhamma, go and sit far away from the village. Try it, (coughs) staying alone or go to some hilltop by yourself, then you begin. You can begin to know what it is really like to look at yourself. Whether or not there is tranquility, do not be concerned. As long as you are practicing, you are creating right causes and will be able to make use of whatever arises. Do not be afraid that you will not succeed. You will not become tranquil. If you practice sincerely, you must grow in dharma. Those who seek will see, just as those who eat will be satisfied. So just the intention to practice at this level of like not agitating the mind, not doing anything that disrupts the mind, for at least periods of time, like we're doing on this weekend, it really sets us up for this deeper work. It's not just that we get moments of peace, when we're on retreat, moments of relative calm and simplicity, maybe moments of real bliss even. It's really part of this deeper work that we're going to start talking about, this uprooting of the causes of dukkha. 
So the tranquility, the ease, the seclusion, you know, the relative simplicity, it's all in the service of calming the mind in, this, uh, in order to see things as they are, to see more clearly. So I mentioned just the, the just to summarize again this first step. <clears throat> so we care enough to abandon blind effort. I said I mentioned last night, just to sort of blindly do things because that's what we're in the habit of doing, or blindly do things because that's what we seem to be told to do. But we're bringing some wisdom, like we know that how I participate in the moment, we either fuel the fires of burning or cool the fires of burning. And so we're tracking it all day long. Is what the mind doing now, how the mind is relating now, is it cooling things off or is it setting things ablaze? And we're just tracking it all day long. And then we become really good at taking care of the mind. Then we won't blindly worry about something because on some superficial level we think we should be thinking about something, but we'll be looking, we'll be tracking, and we'll see, oh, you know, this is self-torment. Why? Why would I do this? It's the not seeing of dukkha that's the cause of dukkha. And then just to remind us again about just specific strategies, we can practice abiding in love. So when you find that you're inclined to relate or to act in the moment in a way that's adding fuel to the fires, then you can strategically, intentionally abide in love. Find a way to abide in love. I care about this life. It's as simple as bringing that basic truth to mind. I don't think anybody has to make this up. I believe probably we all care about this life. So why not just remember that fact? I care about this life. I care about this heart. I care about this body. I care about how it is now. Just as I care about my own life, I care about those around me. I know they want to be at ease, just as I want to be at ease. And see, when we're doing this, we are not adding fuel to the fire. Those kinds of thoughts or cooling. And if you don't believe me, just try it, like we did today during the formal loving-kindness practice. Notice how, if you really follow your intention, you know, to have the thought, have it again, have it again and again and again, you'll see it cools down the mind, the heart. Same with, you know, reflecting on forgiveness, reflecting on gratitude. This is not rocket science. This is sort of basic human common sense. Certain kinds of thinking will create burning. Other kinds of thinking will create pleasant states of mind. I mean, it's really amazing that we don't talk about this more with each other. This is, in a way, our primary responsibility to just take care of ourselves. We can't control everything, but we can, we can control a little bit about 
how it is for us by what we let the mind do. It's just like being a good shepherd for the mind, directing it toward love, directing it towards um, ordinary experience. That was the other suggestion, you know, just to abide in ordinary experience. This is Joseph Goldstein. He's got a great series of talks. I think there are over 40 of them that a group of us at the center are listening to on the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness that he gave over many years at the Forest Refuge. He teaches usually a couple months a year in April and May, and once a week he gives a talk, and over those four years or whatever, he um, put together this series. Now he's writing a book based on these series of talks. And this is the talk, one of the talks he gave on rapture. Rapture is not some sort of state of mind unavailable to us. Rapture is just the effect of a full, complete presence. It's the joy that arises with a full and complete presence with things as they are. So Joseph says, Rapture is this quality of intense interest and arises from a close and caring attention to whatever is arising. When walking, just walk, right? In breathing in, just breathe in. So he goes on, he says, Rapture is just the opposite of boredom. Boredom means lack of attention. And I remember one teacher saying, you know, boredom means, boredom arises when we're not paying attention. It's not like we're paying attention and we realize, oh, this is boring. It's the not paying attention that leads us to conclude it's boring. So when we, this is Joseph again, so when we are feeling bored or just disinterested in our practice, it's actually very useful feedback. Don't just struggle with it, learn from it. When we really look at the quality of boredom, we see that we are in a state I call more or less mindful. We, uh, we're kind of mindful, we're kind of there, but not really. There's a distance. So when we see that, when we feel the boredom, we see its characteristics. Oh. I'm not really connected. So then, based upon that understanding, we can arouse the feeling of rapture, which means intense interest in what's happening by coming close to the object. Now, at first, you have to do that uh, based a little bit on faith. You know, you heard it, and it made sense, so you're going to follow up with it. You know, you heard that bringing this close, full attention to the walking, to the breath, to sitting, to hearing, is good. But the more we do it, the more we realize, in a way, just like uh, filling the belly with wholesome food is a kind of basic uh, pleasure for the body, the mind connecting with the present moment as it actually is, is basic pleasure for the mind. It's the most accessible, always available pleasure for the mind. Just connect. When you have doubt about whether why you came or whether you're a good meditator, the most important thing to do is just connect with something in the present moment. Not out of fear, not because you're afraid of that doubtful thought, but just because it's a basic movement of compassion. 
this is the life that's being lived. Why would it be weird or inappropriate to just connect? Just connect to the body sitting. Just connect, connect to the body standing. Just connect to the next in-breath, to the hearing, to the sensation of humidity. You know, whatever it might be. It's like, uh, we can be so grateful that there is this moment to release into. Whether we use the door, the kind of opening of the body, dropping into the body or the mind, but just to connect to what's already here and now. And you see, it, that it sort of extinguishes, momentarily extinguishes the neurotic doing, you know, I'm the guy who has to figure out what to do. Now all of a sudden I have something to do. Just connect. So that was the second strategy. We can play this card, I'm not kidding, thousands of times every day where we get a little confused who we are, what we're doing here. And just remember, just connect. When walking, just walk. When sitting, just sit. When brushing our teeth, just brush the teeth. When sipping tea, just sip the tea. When watching birds, just watch birds. When swinging our arms in Qigong, you know, just swing the arms. I mean, we've got cliches for this, you know, keep it simple. <laughs> Things like this. This, we could take care of so much of our human suffering just following, you know, these first two, abiding in loving kindness and abiding in the present moment. And then the third is abiding in the power of wholesome restraint. It's like when we clearly see that something is harmful, you know, some inclination or tendency to do something, use the mind in a particular way, and we see that it's unproductive or helpful, you know, really abide in that clear seeing, like inhabit that wisdom. This, this doesn't make sense. You know, like feel the strength of that certainty that's coming out of our past experience. You know, I've been here, I've done this. I know in my bones this isn't useful. So we, we practice a kind of inhabiting that, and actually it feels good to inhabit that. You know how it is. I mean, this maybe is slightly more of a male thing, uh, just that tendency to want to do battle. Of course, we all have feminine and masculine tendencies. And uh, there is a place in human existence to do battle. It feels good. It's energizing to do battle. That's why there's so many sports out there. So when uh, we see something and the tendency to act in a way that's not useful and we know better, and we, yeah, let's just do battle. Let's just do the best we can to refrain, to restrain ourselves from acting in this way. You know, and the, the habit energy that's drawing us into this unskillful pattern it's very sophisticated, but we're also sophisticated. Wisdom's also sophisticated. It also has a few tricks up its sleeve. And we may fail or we may succeed, but the important thing is when that kind of situation arises that we fully engage it. We don't give up. You know, whether it's like dredging up an old painful relationship in a way that's not productive. You know, you're just on the surface, on the content level, not sort of mindfully opening 
the sort of deeper feelings of insecurity or loss or whatever it might be, but just sort of rehashing things in a way or just planning things that don't need to be planned, judging people that don't need to be judged. So to, and not to have to pull that out over and over, that sort of strong resolve, that strong force of restraint, but when it's appropriate to fully inhabit it. One more thing from Ajahn Chah about this uh, inhabiting the, the sort of earthy grandmother who knows better. This is in his book, Still Forest Pool. It's just a collection of his short teachings, Ajahn Chah's short teachings. This one's called Starving Defilements. Those just beginning often wonder what practice is. Practice occurs when you try opposing the defilements, not feeding old, old habits. Where friction and difficulty arise, that's the place to work. When you pick mushrooms to eat, you do not do so blindly. You have to know which kind is which. So too with our practice, we must know, we must know the dangers, the snake bite of, of defilements, in order to free ourselves from them. The defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion are the root of our suffering and of our selfishness. We must learn to overcome them, to conquer and go beyond their control, to become masters of our minds. Of course, it seems hard. It's like having the Buddha tell you to split up with a friend you have known since childhood. Defilements are like a tiger. We should imprison the tiger in a good, strong cage made of mindfulness, energy, patience, and endurance. Then we can let it starve to death by not feeding its habitual desires. We do not have to take a knife and butcher it. Our our defilements are like a cat. If you feed it, it will keep coming around. Stop feeding it, and eventually it will not bother to come around anymore. And so that's that, you know, the image of uh, resolve is that a powerful patience and clarity, like we're seeing it. And, uh, you know, it's like a a wise uh, general. You know, they're not going to uh, attack. They're going to do what actually works. And with, you know, in terms of these tendencies, what works is to maintain this thread of wisdom that understands this doesn't help, this isn't any good. And just to maintain it and let it cease on its own. When we understand that that wisdom, this doesn't work, this isn't helpful, when we understand that that's enough, then anything more is actually enlivening the defilement. If we feel like I have to go get rid of it, it's making it more than what it is. And it's really important to trust this, uh, it seems a little static, like this standoff between you and the tendency. But there's a real, see that as a very powerful, active engagement with the defilement. Like it's not, it's not like we're holding back. 
there's a, a very active moment by moment knowing, yeah, this isn't helpful. We're seeing it. Every moment we're seeing it, we're seeing it. And we're seeing that we're not being fooled by it. And that's energizing to not being fooled by it. Don't need to go there. Don't need to do that. Until it falls away on its own. I think actually that was a common military strategy, right? You just surround the bad guys, you know, until they surrender, until they start to run out of supplies and they give up. It's like I used to tell the story a lot in my introduction to mindfulness class about, I think uh, I first heard it from Swami Satchidananda, Indian teacher um, that I studied with in the early years. And uh, it's about a genie. It's just a made-up meditation story about a genie or about a person who wants a genie and uh, to give him everything he wants in life. And so he thinks, well, I'll go to see this meditation master because I hear they have powers and maybe she'll snap her fingers and make a genie for me. And after pestering this sage long enough, the sage then says, okay, I'm going to snap my fingers and give you a genie, but you're going to be sorry. And the guy says, don't worry, I can handle it. And so he does, she does, and the genie appears and says to the man who wanted the genie, okay, I'll do whatever you want. If you stop giving me things to do, I'm going to eat you up. And the guy says, no problem, I got a long list. And starts telling the genie all the things he wants. And the genie is very quick, gets those things, and it isn't long before the guy realizes actually that he is in trouble because he's starting to run out of things to ask the genie to do. He ends up running back to the cave where the saint lives and says to her, you know, help me. This genie is going to be back in a couple of seconds. I can't think of anything I want, you know. And uh, the saint says, okay, you idiot. <laughs> no. I understand the power of greed on the mind. Here's what you do. Ask the genie to get the biggest tree in the forest, knock off the branches, put it in the middle of a big empty field, and to start running up and down the big pole. He turns around. The genie's there, hungry. He tells the genie, I've got one more thing I want you to do. And tells the genie what the saint told him to say. And this genie goes off and does it. And there it is in the middle of this big empty field, running up and down that pole, for days and weeks and months and years and decades. And finally, the genie goes to the guy and says, listen, maybe I just sit down and lean against the pole, and if you ever need anything, you come see me. (laughs) Otherwise, you know where I am. And they lived happily ever after. (laughs) So it's like that with the mind, too. You know, when we are playing, when we're inhabiting that, strong power of resolve like I'm not going to go there I'm not going to do that and we're in this sort of standoff that's what we're doing we're letting the mind the mind is seeing that this tendency is burning and every moment where it feels the impulse to go there to think that thought to revisit that content it gets a taste of how burning it is and it remembers oh yeah that's burning and then a few seconds later we have the same impulse to go back oh yeah that's burning and so that that's having its effect on the mind. Because the mindfulness is relatively continuous, 
we're continually realizing that going there is burning, going there is burning, going there is burning. And it's changing, it's rewiring the mind, that resolve, that standoff. It's changing how we are. I mean, it's the same thing like, uh, let's say you're in a committed relationship and all of a sudden you're around somebody and someone is in your life who's very attractive to you. And, but you're in a committed relationship and it's a healthy, relatively happy relationship. And, uh, you know, you can feel the attraction and, you know, you could do something about it. You could flirt, you could, you know, how it is, just, just sort of opening doors. But they have consequences, even though it's not like we're asking the person out, but just like, why are we opening doors? Why are we knocking on doors? What are we doing? So we can just notice the attraction, notice the desiring, but notice that we don't have to go there. Notice where it might lead. I mean, there's just so many examples where we don't have to let the mind dwell in that place, go in that direction. And we just have to um, be willing to be on that edge where we feel the impulse, but we're not like needing to distract ourselves. We're, we're ready to do battle. Like to, we have enough momentum of wisdom knowing that it isn't helpful and we're going to stare it down over and over and over again. No, uh-uh, no. Because I care. I'm not going to do that. So let's move on now to talk about you know, this, the relative stability we get by suppressing dukkha, calming the mind, being skillful at abiding in loving-kindness, abiding in the present moment, abiding in this resoluteness, this strength of, oh no, I'm not going there. Things start to calm down. The mind becomes clear because we're not tormenting ourselves. We're not tormenting the mind by letting it go places that are burning. So there's more clarity, more sensitivity, and it allows us to begin to uproot the causes of dukkha. So we're not just suppressing dukkha, but we're understanding that dukkha arises due to causes and conditions. It's not just endemic. The mind struggling with life, the mind resisting life, isn't endemic. It isn't part of, doesn't have to be part of the package. It arises because we don't see things as they are. You know, it's born from self-centered delusion, seeing things from a self-point of view. Actually, uh, I'm told that the root of the word dukkha is a wheel that's out of true. It's like when a life, when life doesn't work well, it's like being in a cart with a wheel that isn't round, or on a bike with a wheel that isn't round. I mean, you know what that's like when you're tire, like uh, you get a big bulge in your tire that sort of screws up the roundness of it. It's like, try driving 40, 30 miles an hour on a tire that's off. I mean, you can creep along and it's okay, but at some speed, not a very high speed, it's unbearable to be in a vehicle with a wheel that's not round. Just the vibration, the, the dissonance. So this is the pain or the um, friction 
that we feel in life, it's when our view, our understanding doesn't align with the way things are. And the uprooting is really about the purification or the transformation of view. So then again, just to go back, so the work we do in practice is we're learning to manage dukkha, to suppress dukkha, just to be basically skillful as a human being, not to be throwing fuel into the flames. And when that, when we get relatively good at that, we keep doing it, but then we can begin to do this other more subtle work where it's all about understanding the importance of view and that it can be transformed. And we transform our view not by simply saying, oh, this is what the Buddha said is right view. He talks a lot about emptiness, so I'm going to just start believing in emptiness. Or he talks a lot about not-self or no self-center, so I'm just going to, that's going to be my view. I mean, there's some value in thinking about these views that, you know, conceptually thinking about them, but actually the, the actual arising of right view is a conditional event. Right view arises due to a particular cause. So what is the cause for right view to arise? Seeing things as they are. When the mind has good information, things as they actually are, then its understanding will be in alignment with that good information. But because of desiring, because of the burning, the mind is distorted. And so what we see isn't actually what's there. We're misperceiving. And then doing things that cause dukkha makes sense on the surface because we're distorted. We're not seeing things clearly. But now we've learned to manage dukkha. The mind is more balanced. Now we can do this work. We can really invest now in seeing things as they are and that will transform the view. So we're not just calming the mind in order to experience the nice experience of calm, the pleasant experience of calm and peacefulness, but we're calming the mind in order to get profoundly interested in the way things are because it has an effect on the mind's view, the way the mind is taking experience to be. Let me read a little bit from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a great translator, a Western Buddhist monk who's lived for a long time in Sri Lanka but recently has been living in New Jersey at a monastery there. He's also the founder of the uh, Buddhist Global Relief Organization, which is one of the groups we're going to be supporting at our upcoming event at Common Ground. So I'll read a few different places here. This is from his introduction. So he's introducing, this is just a collection of the Buddha's teachings in the words, in the Buddha's words, it's called. And this is his introduction. Like other religious teachings, the Buddhist teaching originates as a response to the strains at the heart of the human condition. What distinguishes his teaching from other religious approaches to the human condition is the directness 
thoroughness and uncompromising realism with which he looks at these strains. The Buddha does not offer us palliatives that leaves the underlying maladies untouched beneath the surface. Rather, he traces our existential illness down to its most fundamental causes, so persistent and destructive, and shows us how these can be totally uprooted. I'm skipping down a bit. The teaching begins by calling upon us to develop a faculty called Yoniso Manasikara, which translates as careful attention. Sometimes people translate it as wise attention. He goes on, he says, The Buddha asks us to stop drifting thoughtlessly through our lives and instead pay careful attention to simple truths that are everywhere available to us, clamoring for the sustained consideration they deserve. So what are these simple truths that the Buddha, uh, you know, that we cultivate the stability of attention to see? Most of you know, because you've been around or you've studied these teachings. One is impermanence. The Buddha talks so much about aging, sickness, and death, not to be morbid, but to somehow, in a very concrete way, help us remember the central reality of impermanence. Everything is in flux. Every thought, every feeling, every life, everything is in flux. What else? Another one of the uh, elements or the principles that wise attention uncovers is this, you know, it's part of the problem is that we already know these things conceptually and we think that's enough. Like we all know, if I gave you a quiz, you know, what is the nature of existence? Probably most people in this room would say, well, it's impermanent. You know, things are impermanent. But that's different than the direct moment-to-moment recognition of how that is manifesting in this lived experience. How is impermanence expressing itself now in what I'm experiencing now? The other element that the Buddha, you know, that we see with wise attention, the Buddha suggests we examine over and over again is cause and effect or karma. How things unfold lawfully or conditionally. Because without that insight, without that recognition over and over again in our life, in our lived experience, there's no place for skill. Skill arises because we understand that things are unfolding lawfully. Otherwise, things unfold by chance. Or I'm just, you know, I'm screwed, so bad things happen to me, and you're fortunate, so good things happen to you. And there is some element of, of uh, <laughs> yeah, where we're, we're not in control. But it doesn't mean it isn't lawful, what's happening. And so once we understand this lawful, conditional unfolding, then we also begin to understand what place the present moment, the way the mind is relating, the view, we understand that that's part of the conditional unfolding. Like, there could be, there are, in fact, 
innumerable causes and conditions leading to the fact that this retreat is happening and these particular people are here and we had the food that we had and we have the mind state that we have now and the body state that we have now innumerable but there's also a very potent cause for how it is right now for us and that's how the mind is understanding all of those conditions arising out of the past and that is not to be dismissed so part of understanding karma cause and effect is really understanding the central role of view in the unfolding of what we call reality or our experience it's as important as our genetic code it's important as important as our you know the skill of our parents in raising us or the culture we were raised in if there wasn't this present moment input which we can call view the mind's understanding then we'd have a very deterministic model wouldn't we where we have cause and effect but why bother because where's the what changes the sort of determined unfolding sort of height of spiritual practice would be submission we just submit to this sort of determined lawful unfolding of the previous causes and conditions but what the buddha illuminates as we study the present moment we're studying both the sort of lawful arising of past causes conditions and how it affects the way it is now but over and over again we see how important our view the way we're relating to those causes and conditions how that shapes it as much as anything and then we put all of we we take refuge in view in developing skill with view because it's the potent place of practice but it's very subtle which is why we have to do all of that other work of um of managing desiring so that it, the mind doesn't get too agitated because when the mind's too agitated we can't do the subtle work at seeing view and seeing the consequences of the view and then seeing view and seeing the consequences because the view is affecting reality in each moment so the consequence of the view is a, is happening in each moment and we want to learn this is the primary responsibility we have as a human being to recognize that view matters and to become skillful and you know the buddha again on the level of ideas the buddha tells us you know we're going from self view to basically no view. We're not going from self-view to no self-view because having the view that there uh that uh you know there isn't a self is also problematic. We're really abandoning self-view is really the work. So the Buddha was careful about describing what that view was. You know, so he puts it in the negative, you know, anatta, not self-view. that's what we're cultivating the not self view not taking things personally because if we call it something you know like a, a unity view it's all one 
well, then, you know, myself can like that view. You know, oh, I, I'll go for that. And it becomes the self that has the unity view. So what we're doing is we're abandoning the self-view because we see over and over again it's problematic, it leads to stress, it causes suffering. And in abandoning that, we'll naturally discover right view because right view is not that view. (laughs) That's what right view is. It's the abandoning of that view. We're still going to be there, in a sense, in the moment, the mind relating to the present moment, but it's relating with the wrong view abandoned, with self-view abandoned, dropped, because it doesn't work, because it leads to dukkha. Here's one of the more poignant passages from the Buddha I thought I'd share tonight. The perils of samsara. Samsara is the Pali word for the cycles, the endless cycles of samsara. Practitioners, This samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. What do you think, practitioners, which is more? The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through the long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the the agreeable, or the water in the four great oceans. As we understand the Dhamma taught by the Buddha, the Blessed One, the stream of tears, this is their response to the Buddha, the stream of tears that we have shed as we've roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. Good, good practitioners, it is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me in such a way. The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water of the four great oceans. For a long time, practitioners, you have experienced the death of a mother, the death of a father, of a brother, of a sister, of a son, of a daughter, of relatives, the loss of wealth, the loss through illness. As you have experienced this weeping and wailing, because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable. The stream of tears you have shed is more than the water in the four great ocean. For what reason? Because, practitioners, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to experience disenchantment toward all formations, enough to become dispassionate toward all formations, enough to be liberated from all formations. All formations, all constructions of the mind. So it doesn't mean we don't have constructions of the mind. It means that the mind isn't confused by the construction. So I can imagine myself at a beautiful cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior, but am I confused by that? Or I can imagine something terrible happening, but am I confused by that imagining, that construction, formation in the mind? Can we be disenchanted, dispassionate, and liberated from the constructions of our mind? So when we, uh, well, I'll, I'll just leave that there, that thought there.
I'll just read one more passage again from the Buddha. Practitioners, I say that the destruction of the taints, another word for the defilements, greediness, aversion, delusion, the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. For one who knows what? For one who sees what? I'm sorry, let me just... For one who knows what? For one who sees what? Does the destruction of the taints come about? The destruction of the taints come up, comes about for one who knows and sees this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, and this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It is for one who knows thus, for one who sees thus, that the destruction of the taints comes about. Therefore, practitioners and exertion should be made to understand this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. We'll leave it here tonight. Just take a moment, take a few breaths, let go of the words. practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.